0: Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. Welcome back to another episode of Fatal Fortunes. We are excited to have a special guest in the house. Will, say hello to everybody.
1: Hey guys, how's it going? Excited to be back.
0: And we are excited to have you back. Um, this week's episode is on famed French poet Arthur Rimbaud, or shall we say anti-poet? And you know how we like to start all these episodes here at Fatal Fortunes with a what was happening in the year that this person was born. Nathan, take it away with 1854.
2: All right. So- we got, for the first time, coal gas is used to light major streets in San Francisco in 1854. You've got German composer Robert Schumann saved from a suicide attempt at the Rhine. It's a nice river. Charles Miller. This one's for you, Al. Charles Miller patents first U.S. sewing machine, also for my mom. Um, and this was used to stitch <laughs> buttonholes and your mom, all, all moms out there. <laughs> um, for all of us former Boston students, the BPL, Boston Public Library, opens its doors in Boston, Massachusetts, as the first large free municipal library in the United States. Britain and France declare war on Russia during the Crimean War. And for that war, there are 38 nurses sent, including Florence Nightingale births we had in this year. Uh, Fictional character Sherlock Holmes, creator or founder of Kodak George Eastman, writer Oscar Wilde, and um, Sousa Band composer John Philip Sousa are all born in 1854. Didn't find that many deaths, but we're not here to talk about them today. Here to talk about Arthur Rimbaud.
0: Yes, and Arthur Rimbaud was born in Charleville in northern France. He was the second child of Frederick and Marie Catherine Rimbaud. His father was a captain in the French army and had fought in Algeria before the two people had started a family, and he was described as an easygoing and generous person. And he was even awarded the Legion d'Honneur in the same year that Arthur was born. When he was about 38 years old... He met Marie Catherine on a Sunday stroll, and she was apparently the exact opposite of a character from her husband, being narrow-minded and lacking a sense of humor. Arthur's private name for his mother was Mouth of Darkness, so you can see, you know, how his relationship with his mom was just from that. The couple had their first child in November of 1853 named Jean-Nicolas Frederic. <laughs> And after Arthur's birth in uh, 1854, the couple had two more children who lived to adulthood, Jean Rosalie and Frederic Maria Isabel. Isabel is uh, present for Arthur's death um, later. The couple actually spent little time living together. They lived together for their first few months of marriage, but otherwise he continued his military career and he served in Crimea and Sardinia. He was not at home for the births or baptisms of any of his children. And by 1816, the couple had separated and Captain Rimbaud stopped returning home altogether. Marie Catherine called herself Widow Rimbaud from then on, and Captain Rimbaud called himself a widower as well. In 1862, Madame Rimbaud moved the family to Corse de Orleans. Do we think that um, his, you know, parents' bad relationship, you know, Cause some of maybe the themes are related to some of the themes that we saw in his work.
1: Yeah, I think definitely. I think there's a lot of moving pieces in his early childhood. And it seems like there was just never that stable support system. And I feel like his poetry kind of captures a little bit of a chaotic mind. And I think every artist who really explores the dark side, you can always go back to their childhood and really see what's there.
0: So as we said, uh, the family ends up moving after Captain Rimbaud abandons the family, and the boys had previously been educated at home by their mother, but they were now sent to a school at Pension Rosat, and they attended school there for five years. As punishments, uh, as punishments, Madame Rimbaud would have her children learn hundreds of lines of Latin by heart, and then failed. And then when they failed at this recitation, she would withhold meals from them. Um, The first part sounds like my parents. I remember in third grade, Al, you want to go to the movies? You memorize this Latin. We're checking the notebook. Write it out five times.
2: And the second part sounds like my parents. I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. Until Arthur was 15, his mother would walk him and his brother to school. That sounds so embarrassing. My mom was saying, mm-hmm. you walk yourself to school at 15. You know, of course, Arthur deeply resented his mother and her constant supervision. Ernest Delahaye was his lifelong best friend and was a writer in his own right. And Arthur's childhood nickname was C'est petit cargo, which means dirty little cagot. Uh, the cagots were a persecuted religious group in France. He was a devout Catholic, and this is where the Nickname came from. He was, you know, apparently always espousing to his friends Catholic ideology. So they would call him, you know, the peasant fleeing through the mountain, trying to, you know, convert you. That's how they saw him. At the College de Charville, Arthur was introduced to a wider range of literature. Up until this point, his education had been filled with Latin verses and reading the Bible with, you know, the occasional fairy tale and myth woven in. I don't doubt that he, you know, learned about Joan of Arc and other, you know, famous French stories. He was the head of his class, but he trailed behind in math and science, relatable content. Um, And in 1869, he won eight first prizes in national French academic competitions. By this time, uh, Madame Rimbaud had hired a tutor for Arthur. You know, she really saw his potential and she's already hovering like crazy. So I'm not really surprised. His tutor sparked his love of classic literature and encouraged him to write in both French and Latin. Rimbaud's first poem to appear in print was The Orphan's New Year's Gift, which was published on January the 2nd, 1870 in an issue of La Revue for Um, and he was only 15 years old. Two weeks later, a new teacher of rhetoric arrived at the school, and it was 22-year-old George Isambard. Isambard. We'll call him Izzy, because that's a really long word that I'm probably going to mess up several times. Izzy became Rimbaud's mentor, and they developed a close friendship. Rimbaud even saw Izzy as an elder brother figure. At the age of 15, Rimbaud was showing, you know, his maturity as a poet, and the first poem he showed, Izzy, um, Ophélie, is often regarded as one of Rimbaud's three or four best poems. On May the 4th, 1870, Rimbaud's mother wrote to Izzy to object to him having given Rimbaud Victor Hugo's Les Mis to read. She thought the book was dangerous to the morals of children. And I think that's funny because they had us read Les Mis at 13, like two years younger than Arthur was at the time. <laughs> and Did, you, did of, you
2: feel dangerous when you read I it? I
0: did not feel dangerous. <laughs> I was kind of bored. Mm. I felt pretty bored. Have you guys read Le Miz?
1: No. You no, know, that's a big book to read for 13-year-olds. It's a big movie to
2: watch for any year old.
0: Okay. <laughs> we watched both the movies. And we read that book in, I want to say, like, three weeks. You can only imagine how many chapters we had to read for now. Oh,
1: my God. That's insane. I was actually in Les Mis mm. in high school, summer camp. Um, Who'd you play? I was in a theater camp. I play Jean Valjean, actually. Oh, my oh God. God. Wow. Les Mis, yeah.
2: Star of the show.
0: Back to Arthur, though. The <laughs> Franco-Prussian War has broken out between Napoleon III, Second French Empire, and the Kingdom of Prussia. Um This is going on in July of 1870. Five days after the war breaks out, Izzy leaves for the summer to stay with his three aunts in Douay. In the meantime, preparations for war are being made and the college that Arthur was attending becomes a military hospital. Um It sounds like there were casualties wicked fast. By the end of August, the whole countryside was in turmoil and Rimbaud was bored and restless. You know, he's a little bit too young to be conscripted into the army and his school's closed. In search of adventure, he ran away by train to Paris without funds for his ticket. On arrival at the Nord, he was arrested and locked up in the, Manzaz, in the Manza prison to await trial for fair evasion and vagrancy. On September 5th, Rimbaud wrote a desperate letter to Izzy, who arranged for the prison governor to release Rimbaud and do his care. And I have this handy dandy book called Arthur Rimbaud's Complete Works. I think I got this at the flea market for five dollars. <laughs> along with some plants. And in it, it has the letter from September 5th that Arthur wrote to Izzy. And I'm going to read it to you now because I don't think that what we wrote really gets across how close the relationship between these two was. Uh, it's even, you know, deeper than an elder brother or a teacher student kind of feeling. Dear sir, what you have advised me not to do, I did. I left the maternal mansion and went to Paris. I did on the 29th of August. I was arrested as I got off the train for not having any money and I'm and owing 13 francs on my ticket and taken to the police station. And now I am in prison in Menza. Wait, yeah. Menza, And now I'm in prison in Menza, waiting for trial. Oh, I depend on you as my mother. You've always been like a brother to me. I ask you immediately for the help you once promised. I wrote to my mother, to the state attorney, to the chief of police of Charville. If you don't hear anything from me by Wednesday before the train that goes from Douay to Paris, take that train. Come here to claim me by letter or go to the attorney to intercede, to vouch for me and pay my debt. Do what you can, and when you get this letter, you write to, in order to, yes, write to my poor mother, her address, to console her. Write to me, too. Do everything. I love you like a brother. I will love you like a father. Sincerely, yours, the poor, Arthur Rimbaud, Menza. P.S. If you do get me out, take me to Dwayne with you.
1: Hmm. Wow. Hit all,
2: all familial bases. Izzy is mother, father, brother, lover. All yeah. in one letter.
0: Yeah. And well, it was clearly so compelling that he went and got him. Hostilities, of course, were continuing. Uh, hostilities, of course, were continuing because the Franco-Prussian War is going on and he's actually released into Izzy's care and they go back to Douay where the aunts are living. And uh, once Izzy finally hands Rimbaud over to Madame Rimbaud on the 27th of September. So it's like two weeks intervening period. His mother slaps him in the face and admonishes Izzy, but he was home for only 10 days before Arthur ran away again. From late October, 1870, Rimbaud became openly more provocative. He drank alcohol, spoke rudely and composed, of course, poetry, um, He stole books from local shops. He abandoned his characteristically neat appearance by allowing his hair to grow long. And he was, you know, a very far person from Le Petit Cagot that he was a few years ago. About this time, he wrote, the sufferings are enormous, but one must be strong. Be born a poet. I have recognized myself as a poet.
2: Into some of his poems. Arthur's first poems were pretty reflective of the Parnasse school, drawing inspiration from romanticism and people like Victor Hugo. He developed a style in which profane words were melded together with sophisticated phrases. Take another letter he wrote at 16 called Letters of the Seer for a look into his mindset. Quote, I'm now making myself as scummy as I can. Why? I want to be a poet and I'm working at turning myself into a seer. You won't understand any of this, and I'm almost incapable of explaining it to you. The idea is to reach the unknown by the derangement of all the senses. It involves enormous suffering, but one must be strong and be a born poet. It's not really my fault. Pretty similar to that quote that you had before, Al. Might be from the same letter. Um, He definitely had some... Interesting ideas on life and poetry's connection to it. In his poem, you're going to have to help me out with this one, Al. I am not good at French.
0: La bateau ivre.
2: Sure. That's the drunken boat. And in it, he tells a hundred line story about a boat that breaks free from human society when its handlers are killed. At first, the boat believes it has free will. But then comes to the realization that it is being guided by and to quote the poem of the sea unquote it ends with the boat floating after going through both beautiful and disgusting waters now only wishing to sink and become one with all of the sea the poem was still written fairly conventionally but the next one that arthur writes has a much weirder looser rhyme scheme and a lot more abstract themes. This one is called...
0: Denier Vers" or "Vers Nouveau et Chanson.
2: Thank you. And they were a set of poems published in 1872. He went on to write prose poems known as Illuminations that were eventually published in 1886 where he forfeited structure altogether to explore poems of a hallucinatory dreamlike quality. Then finally, in 1875, he stopped writing poetry all at once. So at this point, what, he's like 21 years old, and he completely stopped. And that childhood friend he had, Ernest Delahaye, wrote in a letter to Paul Verlaine that he had, quote, had completely forgotten about his past self writing poetry, unquote.
0: And he had been having, you know, a steamy, spooky, dooky, sexy relationship with Paul Varane, you know, an older gentleman who was also a poet, which, you know, also seems super far from his dirty little kaget roots and, you know, his strong Catholic upbringing. I think part of like the demise of their relationship is also what sours Arthur from poetry, because they have a relationship, I think, that really parallels Oscar Wilde and that guy in the aristocracy's relationship. You know, they're just bouncing all around the continent, et cetera, et cetera. And then it has to, you know, of course, crash and burn because sodomy is illegal. Boom. And then, of course, I wanted to read you guys one of the poems that is in this handy dandy book of mine. His poems, you know, they're pretty long. Um, I did, however, pick a short one to share with you guys today. It's from an earlier period in his writing On a blue summer night, oh, it's called Feelings. On a blue summer night, I will go through the fields, through the overgrown paths in the soft-scented air. I will feel the new grass cool and sharp on my feet. I will let the wind blow softly through my hair. I will not say a word. I will not think a thing. But an infinite love will set my heart a whirl, and I will wander far like a wild vagabond throughout nature, happy as if I had a girl.
1: I think there's some parallels between Rimbaud and Van Gogh uh, because Van Gogh wasn't very secure, or confident about his painting, and the world didn't really find out about his art till he died. And I also read an article that was comparing a letter that Van Gogh wrote to Rimbaud, and the way that they wrote There were some similarities in the prose. So just food for thought. It's really interesting. I think Rimbaud really is such an influential poet and also like a storyteller. And I think a lot of people were definitely influenced by him, even if they don't say it out loud, you know.
0: And now we go on to his travels. You know, Arthur traveled really far and wide for someone of his day. And maybe he was inspired to do that or had that lust for that vagabond lifestyle based on he knew his father was away someplace else having some crazy crusade. And I think that he imagined that for himself. That's just, you know, some inferences I'm making from the facts. Um, But Rimbaud and Verlaine met for the last time in March of 1975 in Stuttgart after Verlaine was released from prison and his conversion to Catholicism. By then, Rimbaud, like we said, had given up literature entirely in favor of a steady working life. Uh, Albert Camus is one of my favorite writers. I love his stuff. Have you guys read any of his works?
1: I have not. I think I have. I think I actually might have read something at an Emerson class. I remember. I'm not sure, though. I think.
0: Good on Emerson. Hmm. Yeah. Good. A book you really needed. Finally. Um <laughs> I remember his books, The Stranger. That's probably my favorite one. Let me just make sure. That's the one.
1: Yeah. That's the one I remember. Yep.
0: I remember I sat down and I read that book start to finish. Like just boom. And I find that that's so rare that that happens with books. That it's just so consuming that you just can devour it just right then and there in one day. And just not move from the couch. I love stuff like that. You know, of course, Albert Camus, another famous individual in French literature, he reflected on Rimbaud's life and he said that he was nothing to admire, nothing noble or even genuinely adventurous in a man who committed a spiritual suicide, became a bourgeoisie trafficker and consented to the materialistic order of things. I think that's, you know, pretty harsh criticism. But uh, sounds like the existentialist crowd to um, really badger someone who never reached their full potential. Because if that's the stuff he was writing at, you know, 15 to 21, imagine how much further he could have taken it. After studying several languages, German, Italian and Spanish, he went on to travel extensively through Europe like he had been doing already with Verlaine. And he did this mostly on foot. In May of 1876, he enlisted as a soldier in the Dutch colonial army to get free passage to Java in the Dutch East Indies, present day Indonesia. After four months he deserted and fled into the jungle. Uh, He managed to return to France under a false identity um, because of course as a deserter he would have faced a Dutch firing squad. By December of 1878, Rimbaud Journeyed to Larnaca in Cyprus, where he worked for a construction company as a stone quarry foreman to build the British governor's summer residence in Torudos in the mountains. He wrote to his family in France of the arduous conditions of his work. He complained about the heat and the cold of the heat of the plains and the cold of the mountains, and he requested arms to protect himself from the workers under his authority. Um, He was dissatisfied with the irregular pay and suddenly left the island, either because of an illness, later diagnosed as typhoid, or an argument with his employers. According to Otterino Rosa, I love this name, who knew Rimbaud for a few years later in Ethiopia, uh, he said that it was because Rimbaud had killed a subordinate in a fight. But regardless of what really went down, he left Cyprus because of a quote-unquote fever, and he returned to Europe. By 1879, he had crossed the Alps on foot, which I think is crazy. Rimbaud, in his restlessness, finally settled in Aden, Yemen in 1880 as the main employee at the Bardi Agency. And he would go on, this was like a coffee merchant, and he would go on to run the firm's agency in Harar, Ethiopia. He got to work in Aden as a foreman, and he, you know, he already knew Latin. He spoke English, German, Greek, Italian, and he picked up some of the native languages and dialects. He also learned Arabic and studied the Quran thoroughly. So he was really embracing his new life in Africa. In 1884, he is published again. Um, he makes notes based on the report of his assistant Constantine. And this was published by the Société de Géographie in Paris. He wrote home to his family, quote, I am like a prisoner here in 1880. So not sure how much he's really embracing it. Then he said, I am by now completely habituated from every form of boredom in 1882. My life is a real nightmare. (laughs) I don't imagine I'm enjoying it at all. May 1884. (laughs) Sounds like he needs poetry at this point. And clearly has some content. Then he goes on to say, finally, I feel that I am becoming very old very quickly in this idiotic occupation in the company of savages or imbeciles. September 1884. During this period of expatriation, Rimbaud had become... Widely known as a poet in France. Verlaine had written about him in Les Poets Maudites and had published a selection of his poems there. These had been enthusiastically received and in 1886 unable to discover where Rimbaud was or get in contact with him. Verlaine published prose poems under the title Illuminations, which is a famous work of his. And he further published works of his in the Symbolist, in the in the symbolist periodical La Vogue as the work of, quote, the late Arthur Rimbaud. So he clearly didn't want to be remembered and he, you know, so much so that people thought he died. In the same year, 1884, he left his job at Bardi's to become a merchant on his own account in Harar, where his dealings included coffee and generally outdated firearms. At the same time, Rimbaud engaged in exploring and struck up a close friendship with the governor of Harar.
1: Governor of Harar, Ras mekonin wulde mikhail Woldi Melikot.
0: Father of the future, Emperor Haile Selisi, everyone's favorite, (laughs) Rastamon. And he, you know, maintained friendly relationships with the official tutors of Haile Selisi. You know, he he loves the literary types. He loves the people who involved in the learning. Rimbaud worked in the coffee trade, as we've mentioned before, and he was, in fact, a pioneer in that business. The first European to oversee the export of celebrated coffee of Harar from the country where coffee was born. He was only the third European to ever set foot in the city and the first to do business there. In 1885, Rimbaud became involved in a major deal to sell old rifles to Menelik II, King of Shewa, at the initiative of merchant Pierre Labatu. The arms were landed at Tajora in February but could not be moved inland because Leonis Lagarde, governor of the new French administration of obok and it's dependencies issued an order on 12 April 1886 prohibiting the sale of weapons. When Rimbaud finally reached Shewa, Menelik had just scored a major victory and no longer even needed the older weapons, but still took advantage of the situation by negotiating a much lower price than expected for them and also deducted the presumed deaths, the presumed debts of Labatu who had died after the ban had taken place. The following years, between 1888 and 1890, Rimbaud established his own store in Harar. He had developed a circle of friends among the Africans as well as the Europeans. He had a devoted servant, a beautiful Abyssinian mistress, and a very busy schedule. He earned the esteem of the society he had chosen to join, but soon got bored and dismayed. He hosted explorers Jules Borillet and merchant Armand Savoir. Their later testimonies both described him as an intelligent man, quiet, sarcastic, secretive about his prior life, living with simplicity, taking care of his business with accuracy, honesty, and firmness. Except that time he might have killed the guy.
2: But of course, nothing lasts forever in Fatal Fortunes. So it's time to talk about the end of Arthur and He did make a considerable fortune in ethiopia but in february 1891 he developed a tumor on his knee he sent back to france and shortly after he arrived at Marseilles, his right leg had to be amputated and then in july he returned to the family farm at roche where his health grew steadily worse in august 1891 he set out on a nightmare journey back to Marseille, where his disease was diagnosed as cancer. He endured agonizing treatment at the hospital, and there he died, according to his sister Isabel, after having made his confession to a priest.
0: And apparently he was going back to Marseille because he was trying to go back to Africa. I can't believe he thought that he was in a state that, oh, yeah, I can get back to Africa. And I have a little excerpt to read you. Um, This was dictated to his sister, Isabel, the day before he died. He said, Marseille, November 9th, 1891. One shipment, a single tusk. One shipment, two tusks. One shipment, three tusks. One shipment, four tusks. One shipment, two tusks. And that's it.
2: What does it mean? It's very heavy on the shipment.
0: (laughs) And tusks. It's very heavy on the shipment, tusks. Those were, you know, some of the last words of a great poet. Who are we to judge?
1: So now let's get into Rimbaud's legacy. Rimbaud's poetry influenced symbolists, dadaists, and surrealists, among many others. He inspired anti rationalist revolutions in America, Italy, Russia, and Germany. He is referenced in a lot of music, specifically Regina Hanson-Willman set his text to music for her song "Abre de Deluge. Bob Dylan, Patti Smith, John Zorn all call him out by name in their music. Rimbaud is the main character in an opera titled Rimbaud ou le fil de soleil. He has been portrayed in many screen adaptations of his life. Una gone a Inferno, A Season in Hell, and Total Eclipse. And Total Eclipse stars Leonardo DiCaprio. In the and, yeah, It's weird. I've never heard of that movie until I started doing some research about it, and apparently it's a really bad movie. Like It has really bad reviews, like near 0% <laughs> positive. Fun fact, actually, about that, Leonardo DiCaprio revealed in an interview in 2014 that His father actually has influenced a lot of his career choices, including taking the part of Rimbaud and because Leo had no idea who Rimbaud was, but his father is a big fan of Rimbaud and he influenced him to take the role in Total Eclipse and told Leo that Rimbaud changed poetry and was kind of the James Dean of his era. So yeah, that's kind of sexy, right? And then also another fun fact Again, Rimbaud, I feel like it's just everywhere, even in the Rambo series, you know, like Sylvester Stallone going crazy. So the author of the Rambo novel, First Blood, David Morrill, intended the name of the protagonist Rambo to rhyme with Rimbaud and cited Season in Hell as an influence for the novel. Pretty interesting, right? I love that. Yeah. And this is my favorite one. 2017, Patty Smith bought Arthur Rimbaud's replicated childhood home, so basically a reconstruction of his childhood home in France. It was based on his childhood home, and that's where Rimbaud wrote *A Season in Hell*, along with other works. And Patty said in an interview for *Bomb* magazine, "I devoted so much of my girlish daydreams to Rimbaud. Rimbaud was like my boyfriend." Do you guys have? Did you guys have like a imaginary artistic boyfriend, girlfriend, they from, they friend in uh, your adolescence?
0: Mine was probably it's Harry Potter. Years.
1: Might have been mine yeah.
2: too. Honestly, <laughs> I went. I went to all those movies.
0: All those movies. All those book releases.
2: I never. I never was that hard honestly nah i guess i wasn't a, <laughs> I true a thing
0: fan.
1: did you guys ever watch that movie i or read the books i am number four like i had a thing <laughs> for that character i had a thing for that character
2: for number four yeah yeah understandable i mean, I mean i've only seen the movie but it makes i sense. think i just
1: had a thing for that actor and finally rambo's contribution to writing is still felt to this day With many adopting not only some of his themes, but also his inventive use of form and language. And also, I mean, his relationship with what's his face with Verlaine, that was really like one of the big gay, open relationships.
0: And that's Arthur everybody. Oh my god, same brain. I guess we need to follow this up with an Oscar Wilde episode. Cover all of our bases. Okay, guys. Well, that's the episode. Um, Thank you for listening to another episode of Fatal Fortunes. It it has been so nice to have you here. My laptop's going to die, so we are going to wrap this episode up. Great. And remember, guys, (laughs) on Tuesdays, we talk ghosts, and we will see you next time.
1: Bye-bye.